All right, well, good morning. Welcome to TBA. My name is Dave Shive. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure to have you here this morning. Um, Today, we're going to be picking back up in our Joshua series. This is a series where we've been looking at the story of Joshua and the Israelites as they're entering into the promised land and looking at how their story parallels with our story here at TBA. And so before we get into that, I want to take a few minutes to review all the ground that we've covered because we did the Super Bowl thing last Sunday, and so I just want to make sure we're back on track to where we were. So we began this series with the Israelites finally coming out of 40 years of wandering in the desert, and they were about to enter the promised land, and and leadership was being transferred from Moses to Joshua, and the word that God gave Joshua was to be strong and courageous, follow all of God's commands, meditate on his word, and you'll be successful. And the same instructions hold true for us for this church today. We're to follow our leader, Jesus Christ, be in God's word, be strong and courageous, and walk together in unity. It's only then that we're able to accomplish this vision that God's given this church. The next Sunday, Stevie talked about spying the land. Twelve spies, if you remember, twelve spies went out, and only two came back with the right perspective. The other ten could only see giants and defeat. But Joshua and Caleb saw opportunity because God was on their side. And the question was, how do you see the giants in your life? Do you see them with a faith like Joshua and Caleb? Or do you see them with fear like the other ten spies? And then right before Super Bowl Sunday, we talked about how the Israelites crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. And how they set up memorial stones to remember all that God did. And that's why we've got these stones here. Brian talked about the story of our story of how God has had his hand on this church and how he's been leading us on this journey of faith. And so when we look back at all the things that God's done, we want to make sure that we remember that as we move forward, because we still have giants to face, we want to remember that all God's done and hold on to his faithfulness. So that brings us to where we are today. Under Joshua's leadership and with God's help, some two million soldiers and civilians crossed the Jordan River. And a beachhead was quickly established on the other side. And from every human point of view, it looked like it was time to begin the assault to take the land. After all, the morale of the people of Canaan had utterly collapsed. News of what the Israelites had done had spread throughout the land. Their enemies knew that God, the God of Israel, had dried up the Red Sea. They knew that the Israelites had defeated the powerful kings of the Amorites. And they now knew that God had also dried up the waters of the Jordan River so the Israelites could cross over. So as this news spread, so did fear. Fear spread through the land. And what a better time to strike a paralyzing blow. Certainly the military leaders of Israel must have favored an immediate all-out offensive. But this was not God's plan. See, God's never in his hur- and God is never in a hurry, although his children often are in a hurry. And from God's point of view, Israel wasn't ready to fight this fight yet. There was still some unfinished business to do, and it was spiritual in character. It was a time for renewal. Consecration must precede conquest. And that's where we're going to pick up our text today. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, I would like you to open up to Joshua chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12. (coughs) Excuse me. Joshua chapter 5. Verses 1 through 12. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River 
so the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and they were paralyzed with fear because of them. At that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the second generation of Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel at Jabeth Haraleth. And Joshua had to circumcise them because all the men who were old enough to fight in the battle when they left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who had left Egypt had all been circumcised, but those born after the exodus during the years in the wilderness had, been, had not been circumcised. So the Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were old enough to fight in the battle when they left Egypt had died. For they had disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed that he would not let them enter the land he had sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua circumcised their sons, those who had grown up to take their father's place, for they had not been circumcised on the way to the promised land. After all the males had been circumcised, they rested in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal to this day. And while the Israelites were camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover. And on the evening of the 14th day of the first month, the very next day they began to eat unleavened bread and roasted grain harvested from the land. No manna appeared on that day. They first ate crops from the land, and it was never seen again. So from that time on, the Israelites ate from the crops of Canaan. Now, I know that's a, a long passage, and I know that seems a little strange to be talking about circumcision, but there are a few things that I want us to, to get in this passage, because I think there are some things in this passage that are, have application for us today. And the first thing that I want us to see is this new generation of Israelites are facing giants their parents should have faced. They're facing giants their parents should have faced. We talked about it earlier. Twelve spies went out, and they returned after 40 days of exploring the land. And ten spies came back with a bad report. They said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we. They look like, they look like giants. We look like grasshoppers. And only Joshua and Caleb said it could be done. But the rest of the Israelites believed the bad report of the other ten spies, and they lost heart. And they began to rebel, and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they said to Moses and Aaron, Man, if we had only died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to be killed by the sword? And because of their unbelief and rebellion, God said, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, this generation isn't going to enter the promised land. They're going to wander for 40 years, and they're going to die in the wilderness. And so here we are 40 years later, and this new generation... This new generation is taking on the giants that their parents should have fought. And the point I'm trying to make is that what we do, what you and I do, matters for future generations. See, the consequences of sin and rebellion are generational. Yes, there's some personal consequences and immediate consequences that happen. But see, sometimes we forget that there are future consequences that often affect the next generation. How you and I live out this faith, how you and I practice obedience will affect the spiritual climate that our kids grow up in and inherit. It will. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. A study done in 2014 by the Pew Research found out that 44%, almost half, 44% of young millennials, meaning kids that were born after 1990, say that they're atheist, agnostic, 
or that religion is not important in their lives at all. Over half. And when asked why this trend is happening, Michael Howe, a professor of sociology at New York University, said this. He said, Most age differences at any given time are the legacy of the times people grew up. Many millennials have parents who are baby boomers, and boomers express to their children that it's important to think for themselves, that they find their own moral compass. Not God's, their own moral compass. Also, they rejected the idea that a good kid is an obedient kid, and that's at odds with organizations like churches that have a long tradition of official teaching and obedience. And see, just like the new generation of Israelites, our generation of kids are growing up in an environment that is hostile to their faith. They are finding it more and more difficult to live out their faith without being labeled as closed-minded, a hater, spewing hate, a bigot, because they don't believe that we set the standard for ourselves. They believe that God sets the standard for our moral compass. And that doesn't mean that they can't overcome the spiritual climate that they're in. The truth is, this new generation of kids who are following Christ, those who are really following him, are growing up and looking more and more foreign than the rest of the world. They're different than the other kids in their generation. They're misfits. They're radicals. They're outcasts from the mainstream. And the cool thing is, is they're embracing it. They really are. They understand that part of following Christ means that they're different. They understand that it means that they're set apart. And that's the next thing I want you to see in this passage. God made sure that this new generation of Israelites were set apart. See, God made a covenant with Abraham and told him that he would be the father of many descendants and that these descendants would be God's chosen people. They would be a people that is set apart from the rest of the world, set apart in order to show the rest of the world who God was. And in this covenant, God adopted circumcision as the sign or symbol of that contract. God instructed Abraham that every male in his household, as well as every male descendant, would be circumcised. And Abraham immediately obeyed God. So circumcision was given by God to Israel to both initiate and signify membership in the covenant community. It was an outward and physical sign of an inward spiritual reality. The circumcision of the flesh was designed to express circumcision of the heart. In other words, it was intended to depict that the men had experienced in their hearts the painful surgery of repentance. The fact that circumcision was not practiced for the 40 years of wandering shows the problem with the older generation. The wandering in the wilderness was due to their hard hearts. They never truly submitted to God. They never truly experienced repentance. And now that generation is gone, and this new generation is camped in Cana, ready to begin its conquest. And it was important that this new group, this new generation of Israelites, realized that the only way they were going to succeed, the only way they were going to overcome these giants in this land was to yield their hearts to the Lord. And they had to experience that by the cutting away of sin through repentance. The same is true of us. Paul says in Colossians, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. Not by physical procedure, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. 
So circumcision for us is spiritual. It's not physical. It takes place at the time of salvation when the Holy Spirit joins a believer to Christ. And because of that circumcision, we're no longer a slave to our sin. We now have the freedom to yield our hearts to the Lord. And it's only in this spiritual circumcision that we have any chance, that we have any chance to overcome the giants that that are in our lives. So Israel had to be set apart. That was the first part. They had to go through a physical and spiritual circumcision. The second part was they had to be obedient to God. This second generation was going to succeed where their first generation failed. This new generation was going to be obedient where their parents weren't. See, at a time when all the nations of the land were filled with terror, and the Lord commands Joshua to circumcise the the sons of Israel, he obeys immediately. Even though, as a military leader, it must have been very difficult for him to incapacitate his entire army in a hostile environment. But he does, and he obeys immediately. So what does any and all of this have to do with us? Well, with the time that we have left, I want to talk to you about our new generation. The children and the students here at TBA that are growing up now. And I've talked about it a little bit already. But this new generation, you need to know this, this new generation is at risk. If we as a church don't rise up and do something about it, they're at risk. Now you hear me say that, and you might say to yourself, well, he's being overly dramatic. No, I'm not. I'm not. I've shared this statistic with you before, and the numbers don't lie. Fifty percent. Fifty percent of kids that grow up in church, fifty percent of kids that grow up in a youth group, fifty percent of them go off to college and walk away from their faith and never come back. Fifty percent. And I don't know about you, but that sounds highly serious to me. And the question I ask myself all the time is why? Why do 50% of them walk away from God and never come back? And based off of the things that I've read and the research done by people like Dr. Kara Powell, who's the author of Sticky Faith, coupled with 20 years of experience working with the youth, leads me to an answer that honestly I don't think you're going to like and frankly might make you mad and defensive because the truth of the matter is 50% of kids are walking away from their faith because as parents, we are not modeling it properly for them. We're not modeling it for them. Dr. Christian Smith, a sociologist from the University of Notre Dame, concluded in his research, he said this, the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents. When it comes to kids' faith, parents get what they are. Modeled and taught to them by their parents. Not by their church, not by their youth pastor, not by their youth leader, but by their parents. The church's role, the youth group's role, while it is important, is secondary to how you model and teach your kids as a parent. Deuteronomy 6 says this, You must commit, commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you. Repeat them again 
and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting them up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. That is a command from God to us that we are supposed to be teaching our kids biblical truth. And the fact is, we're failing at this command. We're failing at it. 11,000 teenagers from 561 congregations are interviewed across six denominations. And 12%, get this, 12%, one out of eight, one out of eight kids have a regular dialogue with their mom about faith and life issues. Only one out of 20 have a faith conversation with their dad. Only 9% engage in regular reading of the Bible with their family. So that means only one out of 10 teenagers ever look at Scripture with their parents. We have to do a better job than this. We do. Because the sad fact is, for some of us, our children have a more mature faith than we do. For some of us, our children are the spiritual leaders in their home, a role they were never intended to have. Some of our students have God first in their lives while their parents, while their parents' priorities are skewed. Some of our students faithfully attend church, read their Bible every day, seek God while their parents make other plans and are MIA. Listen, it's bad enough that our kids face the giants in the life that they have to face, things that we never had to face as kids. It's bad enough that they have to overcome those obstacles without us as parents being one of the obstacles they have to overcome. That can't happen. It just can't. And you would be blown away. You'd be blown away by what our kids, our students, our students here at TBA go through and face every day. Things like sexual identity, homosexuality, porn at every turn, not just for boys, but for girls as well. Sexting, meaning texting naked pictures of themselves to each other. Self-mutilation, underage drinking, drugs, sex before marriage, abortion, shame, guilt, acceptance and value, All of this, every aspect of their life is on display for the whole world to see through social media. Every action ready to be judged in the court of man for immediate acceptance or immediate rejection. And they live on that knife edge every single moment of their lives. That's what our kids are going through. So you would think, you would think the least that we could do as parents would be a firm foundation in our homes for our kids, a solid and biblical foundation of truth and identity in Christ. Because our kids face some pretty big giants, and they need that foundation. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't overcome, because God's on their side. And just like God raised up a new generation with the Israelites, he's raising up a new generation here. And I want you to know this. I want you to know that God is doing an amazing work in the life of our students. He is. And it really started last summer on our mission trip to Kentucky. These students went to Kentucky, and they learned what serving was really about. And they came back on fire for God and jumped in. 
We have so many students that serve here at church week in and week out. From up here on the stage playing in the band to back in children's ministry to places you don't even see like the homework club every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. These students are sacrificing their time, which in a life of a teenager is a high commodity. They're sacrificing their time to serve the Lord, which is really, really cool. But the the problem with that is that in a lot of these areas where they're serving, they're not just the supplemental help. They're the only help. And if they didn't serve, that ministry would suffer greatly. It shouldn't be that way. Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm ecstatic that our kids are being obedient and following God and serving. I tell them all the time, they're not the future of the church. They are the church. And it's cool to see them embrace that. But we as adults should not sit back and let our students carry the full burden of ministry, even if they're willing to do it. We should not sit back and let them carry it. We have to be the leaders. The other amazing way that God's working in this new generation, and this really gives me great, great hope, is that they are beginning to have a passion for God's Word. See, last month we went on our winter retreat, and this winter retreat was a little bit different from the one that we've done in the past. This time, we took a a period of time to specifically seek the face of God and wait for God to answer And it's something that we're going to do as a church body as a whole in the fall with experiencing God. And you're going to be hearing a whole lot about that as we move forward. So be on the lookout for information about experiencing God. But at this winter retreat, we walked through a process with these students. And we taught them how to seek God and how to hear from God. And God spoke very powerfully through them. See, one of the things that we asked them to do was to write a letter to themselves from God, as if God was writing the letter himself. And I wish I could describe to you how powerful that was and how God spoke love and grace over these students. And I wish every one of you could have experienced what these students experienced that weekend because it would truly be life-changing for you. But I just want to give you a glimpse. So I've asked Eve Reber to come and share her letter with us this morning. So Evie's going to come and share her letter that God wrote to her. Hey guys. Eve, honey, it's Daddy here. Your Father in Heaven, multitudes greater and more dependable than your earthly parents. I am more nurturing than the abusive mother that predisposed you to the, trust, to the trust and abandonment issues you'll carry with you through all of your relationships, including ours. I know it can be hard for you to trust. I knitted you together in your mother's womb and laid, us, and laid out a spectacular plan for your life. My love and adoration for you can be shown even in the little things you take no mind to. I know you feel out of place and alone sometimes, but I've got you, baby girl. Confide in me. Trust in me. Go to me. I will never walk out on you. I will never forsake you. Not like the people who claim they'd stay with you until time's end and left at the first sign of trouble. Eve, you deserve so much more than the consequences of other people's mistakes. No matter what Satan may try to tell you, you are loved beyond belief. By me, your friends, and the loving family I've blessed you with, the loving mother I've blessed you with, a strong and courageous woman who fills where you lack. She will continue to push you and encourage you, even in the places you wish she wouldn't. Don't you see? 
All this is happening for a reason. I've always had something better in mind. I made you exactly how I imagined. There is not a cell in your body that hasn't been stitched together with beauty. The acceptance of others does not make you any more or any less beautiful. And I know it hurts, honey, when you don't feel accepted, when you feel like you don't fit in. But I accept you, and that should be enough. Lean not on your own understanding, but trust in me with all your heart. But Eve, you don't fit in. This world is not your own, but one you need to change. I plan on using your talents, your leadership, to change the hearts of others. You are an alien here. I know it's hard to understand. But please come to me about it. I miss you. I miss our talks when you'd tell me all about your day and pray on things you were struggling with. I even miss the talks when you were crying, pleading for answers and a feeling of contentment. My sweet girl, you have grown so much in the past two and a half years. I can't wait to watch you grow even more as you go through life. I want you to keep improving and developing. I want you to stop procrastinating so you'll make time for me. I want you to be more sympathetic and patient towards others, even when you're angry with them or irritated by their actions. I would love for you not to worry as much about how others perceive you. It makes your heart heavy with stress, angst, and a longing for the acceptance only I can give. I made you who you're supposed to be, and your past was all a part of my plan. It is still shaping you into the godly woman you'll become. But I know your past hurts, and you try to push it to the side like it's not something you deal with every day. But honey, you are not damaged goods. You are not broken beyond repair. I know every inch of your being, every thought in your brain, every action you've ever made, are making, and will make. I forgive all the bad and love you no less. Don't you understand that? I love you unconditionally. I know it hurts that you didn't feel wanted by anyone when your dad left, and then again when your mom left. But I also know the immense joy, love, and gratitude you felt when your dad reached out to you for the first time in a long time and asked to have dinner with you. And then even more so when you were visiting him a thousand miles away from home and he asked you to live with him. Eve, you are a warrior. You have to continue to clothe yourself in my armor. Be in my word every day. Be graceful in every situation, giving grace even to the most undeserving people. Show my love. When you give much fruit, my Father is honored. This shows you are my followers. John 15, 8. You are kind, caring, wise, sensible, and strong. I want you to use those qualities to spread the good news of Jesus. Your insecurities and worries sometimes hold you back from your full potential. You should pray to me in those moments. My presence will give you peace and guidance. Do not worry. Learn to pray about everything. Give thanks to God as you ask him for what you need. The peace of God is much greater than the human mind can understand. This peace will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6-7. I cherish our time together so much. I've loved getting to know you these past couple years. Our journey together has only just begun. I've matured you so much in such little time. I'm so proud of you. I love the passion you have for working with children. It makes me joyful to see you speak into their lives about me. I can't wait to show you where I'll lead you in that area as you mature into adulthood. You'll be doing some big things, for I know the prosperous plans I have for you. I'll be walking with you step by step throughout your journey in life. And most importantly, I'll never leave. I'm not going anywhere. Always remember that. I will always love you more than all the stars in the sky. Stay strong, my beautiful child. Abba. Thank you, Evie. Um, that's just a glimpse. I'm telling you, there, there's 30 other letters like that that God did and worked in the lives of these kids at that retreat. It was really, really powerful. Okay, so what do we take away from all this? I want to challenge you with two things before we leave. The first is this. Be the model and spiritual leader in your home that God designed you to be. Please be that. As parents, please be that. If you need some practical things to do, 
I highly recommend that you get this book. It's called Sticky Faith. And in my opinion, this should be mandatory reading for every single parent. Even if your kids are only babies, get this book. Read this book. The second challenge that I would give you is get involved. Listen, the enemy has laid a thousand traps for our children that they try to walk through every day, and they need godly people investing in their lives. See, I refuse to give in to 50%. I refuse to let the enemy take half of our kids away. I refuse it. But I can't do that by myself. Our kids need you. They need your wisdom. They need your life experience. They need your listening ear. They just need to know that somebody is there who will listen and care for them. So jump in. Whatever you're afraid of, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what skills you have. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. God can use you in the lives of these kids. Today is a good day for you to be involved. If you're interested in children's ministry, I encourage you, stay for this barbecue. Hear what's going on in that ministry. Jump in. Get plugged in. If you're interested in youth, I'd love to have you. I'd love to have you. On your insert is my information. You can contact me anytime. I'll be, I'll be glad to sit down. We'll do lunch. We'll talk about all the things that God's doing in youth ministry and how you can impact and shape the lives of these kids who are going to be the next generation. Either way, find a way to invest. Invest in the new generation that God's raising up. Will you pray with me, please? Well, Father, we do thank you for your love and your grace and your continual faithfulness, Lord, that you, in spite of all things, God, will continue to raise up a new generation, a new generation of followers who will love you and serve you and spread your good news. God, my prayer is that as the older generation, we will uphold our part, that we will create a firm foundation, a biblical foundation, God, that we will lead this new generation and show them your love and your ways. Help us to do that and be obedient to all that you call us to do. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.